In Genesis 12, 12, God promises that he will make Israel a great nation, that he will bless them and that they will be a blessing to others. In today's modern age, Israel is known as the startup nation, and they are blessing the world tremendously through innovation and startup technology. Let's talk about it today on the Amplify Israel podcast. Well, hey there, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you for tuning in, checking us out, following along, and being a part of the Amplify family as we explore the beautiful land, nation, and people of Israel. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Fedorsik, and today we're going to take a look at Israel, the startup nation. Now, in Genesis 12, 12, God promises that he will make Israel a great nation, that he will bless them, and that they will be a blessing to others. In today's modern age, Israel is known as the startup nation, and they are blessing the world tremendously through innovation and startup technology. Now, the story of Israel is a remarkable one. What is equally remarkable is the story of the high-tech sector in Israel. The Israel startup nation, as it is now often known, can, can trace its economic roots all the way back to 1990, but socially and culturally, its roots go back all the way before the Israeli War of Independence to the very first Aliyah, or the the going up, the the mass migration, the coming home of the Jews. See, to fully understand the dynamics of modern Israel, its high-tech industry, and the economic and political climate in which it operates, it is helpful to have a high-level understanding of the history of the area beginning in 1882 forward. From mass migration to wars, from, from independence to embargoes and and stagflation to startup nation. The story of Israel really does have it all. So let's first talk pre-independence. So the first Aliyah began in 1882 and was the initial major wave of Zionist migration to the area. Now, subsequent waves of immigration followed, but it was these early aliyahs where the Zionist values of manual labor evolved into a deeper ethos of innovation due to the harsh living conditions and the need to make the land agriculturally productive. As these early waves of immigration continued, the values of austerity, egalitarianism, and argumentation, and resistance to authority were formed. It was these values that are widely attributed to being vital in shaping the modern state of Israel, the Israeli Defense Force, and the Israeli people. 447,000 immigrants arrived in the period between 1882 and 1939 as part of the Aliyahs. Now, initially, these included Jews from Romania, Russia, Poland, and Eastern Europe. Now, after 1929, due to the rise of Nazism in Germany, a quarter of a million Jews fled from Austria and Czechoslovakia to Israel. Many of these later immigrants were professionals. They were doctors, lawyers, professors, as well as architects and musicians. It was during the time of the fifth Aliyah onwards that the economy diversified from being predominantly agricultural to having some significant industry. And this economic diversification was particularly marked after the completion of the Port of Haifa and its oil refineries in 1933. Now, under the British mandate, immigration was made illegal. However, 
the Jewish agency continued to promote immigration, displaying defiance for authority and recognizing the need to survive once the British mandate expired. From 1933 to 1948, an additional 110,000 immigrants arrived in the area. By 1948, the population had grown to over 800,000. And on May 14, 1948, David Ben-Gurion, head of the Jewish agency, declared independence to form the state of Israel. On May 15, 1948, the day of the expiration of the British mandate over the area, the newly declared state of Israel was invaded by the Arab states as a continuation of the ongoing civil war in Palestine. Now, a war for control of the former British Palestine continued until a ceasefire was declared on March 10, 1949. And it was during the early part of the war for independence that the Israeli Defense Force, the IDF, was officially founded bringing together the various forces that had been operating under the Jewish parliament in the area. Ever since its formation on May 26, 1948, the IDF has been a conscript army. Since the 1948 War of Independence, the IDF has been involved and continues to be involved in many major military operations, making it one of the most battle-trained armed forces in the world, despite its short history. To this day, the IDF operates with a mandatory military service for all Israeli citizens over the age of 18. The exceptions to this are the ultra-Orthodox Jews and Arabs. Men will serve a minimum of 32 months and women 24 months. Up until the age of 45, former service personnel may be requested by their units to serve once per month per year in the reserves. So learning from failure as a, as a fundamental principle this is something that is core to the IDF. Arguably, this has never been felt more acutely than during the Yom Kippur War of 1973. See, Israel was caught off guard, and when Egypt and Syria launched a surprise attack, breaching Israeli defenses along the Suez Canal on the holiest Jewish day of the year. Now, Israel went on to win the war, but it crushed Israel's previous attitude of invincibility, which followed the Six-Day War of 1967. See, the Jewish state simultaneously defeated Egyptian, Jordanian, and Syrian forces in six days and expanded its borders by taking the Golan Heights from Syria, the West Bank and East Jerusalem from Jordan, and the Gaza Strip and the Sinai Peninsula from Egypt. So the, the IDF, man, they were feeling good. And the Yom Kippur War was kind of, it was a wake-up call. It was a wake-up call. See, but Israel went on to win the Yom Kippur War. However, this led to some national soul-searching, right? An all-out Arab attack was not expected due to the decisive defeat of the Arab forces in the Six-Day War. Israel was not prepared. Israel was not ready when this happened. Israel was so heavily reliant on the United States for technology, it's a, a risk that from this point forward, they could no longer take. And with the 1967 French embargo, Israel decided that it needed to be militarily independent. Unit 851 was renamed to Unit 8200 and became Israel's research and development hub. The investment in R&D through the military, a decision driven by state security rather than market forces, also marked the beginning of 20 years of economic stagnation. And it wouldn't be before the 1990s that the economy would recover. Now, from 1950 to 1970, the standard of living 
in Israel doubled. In sharp contrast, the period from 1970 to 1990 was a period of economic stagnation. Immigration declined and infrastructure was inadequate. And the 1970s began with periods of inflation and unemployment. In 1971, inflation was at 13%. A change in the exchange rate policy caused inflation to jump to 133% in 1980 and 445% in 1984. It wasn't until 1985 that a stabilization policy was imposed. Now, due to insufficient opportunities at home as a result of the economic conditions, many Israelis left for Silicon Valley to join the emerging startup and venture capital scene. It was later in the 1990s when the Israeli economy began to recover. This diaspora of Israelis was fundamental to providing the critical links between Silicon Valley and Israel. See, the typical Israeli startup of the 1990s would have their R&D operations in Israel and their sales functions in the United States. As immigration was so low during this period, the Israeli government initiated a number of Mass immigration movements, for example, Operation Moses in 1984 brought 8,000 Ethiopian Jews to Israel. However, this additional human capital was not matched with the availability of domestic opportunities. So here's the turning point. Israel entered the 1990s on a stable footing, and the economy that is recognizable today was born. In 1985, a stabilization plan was developed for Israel by the U.S. to address the hyperinflation. The stabilization policy successfully brought down inflation and provided a more attractive environment for Israelis to remain and work in the country. This led to the first generation of Israeli-based startups in the 1990s. You had many Israelis that returned from the U.S. to form new companies, establish R&D centers for their American employers, or to invest in companies in Israel. During the 1990s, industrial exports rose from $7.7 billion to $20.9 billion. High and medium-high technology grew from 51% at the beginning of the decade to 86% of the total by 1999. As the peace process evolved, security expenditure also dropped. In the 1970s, security expenditure accounted for 25% of the GDP, mainly due to the need to rearm after the Yom Kippur War. By the end of the 1980s, the rate dropped to 15%, and during the 1990s, the rate fell further to 7% to 9%, where it has remained until today. Today, Israel's main threats come from non-state actors, Hamas, Hezbollah, and these are limited to short hostilities with low impact on the economy. Israel's main existential threat still comes from the nation of Iran. Now, the ongoing peace process combined with the end of the Cold War has undermined the Arab boycott against Israel. You see, in the early 1990s, we saw an increase in immigration from the former Soviet Union, many of which held academic or managerial positions before arriving in Israel. And the industry ran a massive retraining program involving 20,000 people to turn civil and agricultural engineers into hardware and software specialists. Now, in 1992, the Israeli government launched the Yamza program to incentivize venture investments. This program made $20 million available on a one and a half to one match. The Israeli government would retain 40% equity 
but offer partners to cheaply buy out that stake with interest after five years. Therefore, the government shared the risk and the investors got all the reward. It was from one of these funds that Jerusalem Venture Partners was seeded. As of 2011, get this $3 billion in capital was managed by companies seeded from these funds. $3 billion in capital was managed by companies seeded from these funds. Now check this out. From 2003 to 2012, Israeli tech companies raised $1.69 billion in 25 IPOs in the U.S. and $1.16 billion in 23 IPOs in Europe, raising just $493 million across 15 companies in Tel Aviv. Today, in the 10 years from 2006 to 2015, the Israeli high-tech industry has come close to doubling the number of startups formed annually from an, a range of 550 to 650 a year. This was from 2006 to 2009 to between 1,000 and 1,100 in the period between 2011 and 2014. Now, as of 2018, the number of new startups has leveled off to around 1,000 companies per year. So what causes Israel to create such high number of technology startups? Well, see, its unique history has shaped the people of Israel, and those with a relevant skill set, education, or army background find the economic conditions to be perfect to create new tech companies. Institutional infrastructure is readily available, including tax incentive, state-subsidized venture capital, incubators, R&D support. They have the whole package there to start these companies off right. Since the 1990s, the venture capital industry has matured, and this is now complemented by a sophisticated community of angel investors and corporate investment by multinationals. Investment banks are ready to guide startups into IPOs in both the U.S. and Europe. And the rise of multinationals locating the R&D facilities in Israel has had multiple effects from providing experience to would-be entrepreneurs, making office space available, and providing financing. Additionally, Israel's universities have a pedigree of commercializing innovation that was developed in their research facilities, acting as another source of startups. However, it is the qualities of the Israelis themselves that have been the catalyst for these structures being created and evolving to such an extent to bring the title of startup nation to Israel. Personal initiative, risk-taking, and resistance to unnecessary authority are the real drivers for startup nation. Well, that's all we've got for today's podcast. Be sure to give us a like, a share, and a rate if you're enjoying what we're doing here at Amplify Israel. If you're on social media, give us a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, all at Amplify Israel. Until next week, Todah God bless you guys. Bye.